Chocolate. 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 Hey, chocolate lovers. Since April has five Wednesdays, that means a bonus full-length interview. This month, I'm sharing it a bit early, however, as the new episode is not quite ready. Keep an ear out for a special episode on coronavirus next week. And until then, enjoy my interview with Malaysian chocolate maker Ning Ying Ong. Since 2008, Ning has been working in the chocolate industry in his native Malaysia. He's growing, fermenting, and processing his own cacao into chocolate, alongside the indigenous community across peninsular Malaysia. In this interview, we dig into the void that brought him to where he is, and what he hopes to accomplish with his many, many projects. Until next week, enjoy! You know, we're already recording. This obviously won't go. Okay, great. So uh, please introduce yourself. Can you tell me about how you became a cacao farmer and a chocolate maker? What brought you back to Malaysia? My name's Ning, and I operate the brand Chocolate Concierge. I returned to Malaysia some 11 years ago and was very interested at the time with food and beverage, but more particularly anything that was fermented. So I tried my hand at the time, brewing my own beer, brewing my own mead, looked at coffee, tea, took a, a certification course with course of master sommelier, so wine, tried to make my own cheese, make my own cheese. And I started to ask if Malaysia could have something that is homegrown that would stand a chance offering into the world that um, Malaysia can call its own, but also well-made. And I explored coffee at the time. I explored brewing beer. Um, beer, I stumbled across a licensing issue. And with coffee at the time, I didn't find a producer that I thought was worth pursuing. It's a different story now, 11 years later. But at the time, I thought co- um, chocolate was the best bet for me. So when did you fall into chocolate and cacao? Around what year was this? How long after right you off came the back? bat? Right off the bat, I did a couple of things very quickly. Right off when I touched down, and um, it was not continuous. Of course, I explored and then tried something else, and then came back to it. But within the first year, a lot of these explorations started. When John Nancy started publishing, um, he started back in two thousand three. But oh, okay. Like, so it's about so, two thousand and nine that yeah. I maybe a year or two after that that I stumbled across mm. and found out that I could hack it <laughs> and that's how figure, that's how I started yourself, to yeah. start started to make yeah in a small really small way so could you tell me more about the cacao supply in Malaysia how it maybe it's changed or shifted over the last 10 years well initially when as a proof of concept um, and and what really I guess I was lucky because when I thought I wanted to make in fact, the first question that I asked wasn't that if I could make a Malaysian chocolate. The first question I asked was if I could taste one. And so I went around trying to find someone who actually made it and filling which I thought, okay, roll up my sleeves and yeah. if I could find Do beans it. now. And just no one was making... Sure, there were chocolate makers in Malaysia, but they weren't using exclusively Malaysian beans. 
they were they importing beans. They were importing liquor from Indonesia, Africa, Malaysia. At the time, she was、uh, in the top five in terms of volume of liquor produced、Processing. in the world. Yes, yes. This was because we had a lot of Malaysia had a lot of excess capacity from the time that we were producing a lot. Had we kept up with those numbers today, Malaysia would have placed top ten in terms of volume of cacao produced. But it hasn't. It's gone down. It's it's gone down to,、um, yeah, it, it, it's declined a lot <laughs> over the years. So, are you as a farmer producing more on your farms than you can use in your chocolate shop? And is this common? If so. We are handling my farm operation handles、um, post harvesting, and we are handling post harvesting process for beans that we don't necessarily grow. Sure, we grow. We have we are operating、um, three regions within three regions that we are running and operating,、um, but we are also working with the indigenous community. In a corporate social responsibility project, where we are working with 150 families and offering to buy fresh wet beans from them, which we handle the post processing for.、Um, so, for all of those origins, now seven, we are looking to expand south and east to increase the number of origins that we can offer. From seven. From seven. Well, we have、Daring. to be we have to be representative. I feel、yeah. so. Out of those, I'm only using currently sixty、um, to seventy percent, and so about a third of it is to supply to other makers. And how many other makers are you supplying to at the moment? Well, it's. I'll give you a number, but it's not going to be like. I'm consistently supplying them. Some could be buying a lot from this season or two lots from this season, and then I don't may not hear from them for six months. Or it's,、mm-hmm. but I think about a dozen now in and out of Malaysia, Singapore, Vietnam, Thailand,、oh, cool. Russia. Yeah, Russian chocolate Russia, is Russia, Russian、yeah. chocolate makers are considering Malaysian beans. Yeah. I had my friend translating a bunch of like Russian like sub not subtitles captions for photos. Just a couple of weeks ago, someone visited me,、um, but I had to really apologize because at the time it was、um, host Milano, and、uh, I was sourcing for equipment, and I just had to、um, make that trip, and so my team greeted them, welcomed them, gave them the tour, and saw the chocolate. Producing facility, and they took some beans, have an, and have placed an order for more beans. But you couldn't be there personally. I didn't meet them personally.、Okay. Yeah. Can you tell me more about Culture Cacao and that project there? Culture Cacao is an entity that we set up. I'm surprised you know of it because I don't really advertise that a lot yet、I、at this point. <laughs> so that's chocolate concierge ha- handling from the bean. To the bar and caca-、um, culture cacao,、okay. who's actually involved with the farm operations from cacao hunting to、yeah. testing, and I'm involved here as far as fermentation is concerned because I'm really、um, interested and like to geek out with fermentation.
and that's how we produce beans that chocolate concierge turns into bars. So how would you describe Malaysian farmers as a whole? Do they catch on to trends quickly? Are they more creative and experimental, kind of like you are with your fermentation and like, for example, the 60-day cold ferment bar that you had? The Malaysian farmer um, that I first made a bar out of, um, in fact, the first bar I made, the first few bar, first few batches I made were from cacao that were planted around, um, around where I live. Mm -hmm. So that was the first bars. But beyond that, when I wanted to scale, I bought beans from farmers and some of the, some of the batches were really good, were stellar. And then when I placed an order, I got something totally different. And after a couple of those, I decided that I have nothing to stand on. I have not a foundation yeah. from which to build on and that I really needed to control the fermentation process. And that's how I owned, started to look for and, and run a farm. If the farmers I worked with at the time could produce for me a, uh, and I don't mean consistency in flavor, but just a consistency in how much, how well fermented the beans are. Mm -hmm. If that problem was solved then, I don't think today I would be a grower myself. So would you say that the fermentation issue is consistently a problem? Is it that they're just taking the beans out of the pots and drying them immediately? Or are they attempting fermentation at all? The Well, let's let's start from one step up on, on how who are the farmers selling to currently. The farmers are selling to collection um, centers that are then supplying liquor makers and grinders. And a lot of the beans that are produced here goes into powder, liquor, and butter. So to that end, they are not incentivized to ferment it particularly well because it's going to be blended anyway and it, a lot of it might just end up being alkalized and pressed for butter. So they're not paid more if they did it differently. But are they expected to ferment at all? So fermentation is practical and a necessity for drying. So how they do it is... Nine out of ten growers that I, I talk to, the, the modus operandi is to leave the beans freshly out of the pot into a bag. And this could be a rice bag or, or a fertilizer bag. <laughs> and that bag is left in the sun or on tarmac or on cement floor for three days without a turn, just so that the mucilage or the sugar does something. Um, rots <laughs> let's put it that way it's Ew. maybe not maybe ferment but not the best desirable fermentation and then it's dried because trying to dry with all that mucilage and sugar and pectin is not very efficient and it's better of if it's if something eats it first and then and then it's dried so that's how it's done surprisingly some of the batches that are fermented <laughs> in air quotes this way doesn't make terrible chocolate. But pure luck, I imagine, if it's only some of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 
it's uncontrolled, one can imagine, yeah. So what are the most popular chocolate-type products in Malaysia? Chocolate-type products, does that include like Nilo, like the chocolate cocoa drink, cocoa powder drink? Anything and... that might involve some cocoa powder at a minimum. So what kind of chocolate-type products would you say? All kind of confectionery, and then there's Milo, which is, yeah, which is a cocoa drink. Malted That's right. Drink. Yes, that's it. And is it any different between the urban and more rural areas? Like KL versus outside of KL? I'm not sure. Like when you talk to the farmers, do they consume chocolate at all in any form? It depends. Um, the more rural farmers, growers that we work with, and I really mean out-of-town rural, um, no, they, they don't consume a chocolate product at all. Do they consume the outside? The oh, yeah, they do. Yes, they do. Yeah. The kids do and the adults do. And So they think of cacao more as just like another fruit in their garden. Yeah, yeah. Um, to them, Malaysia has a cultivation history of cacao for almost 250 years. And it has naturalized. It's, it, it means that we could walk into the jungle and... If you could identify cacao, you would see that you could identify some trees in the wild. And I imagine only because the civet cats, the bats, the squirrels, the tree shrews love the fruit. And they grow readily without much tending to. And if you, and there's this patch in the Forest Research Institute of Malaysia where there are trees that are really age old um the bowls the trunks have fallen over but the trees have survived um and you could see if you brave the leeches and you could see cacao trees in malaysia in a while but in 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 most of the communities um indigenous communities we work with cacao is planted um into the wild at the fringes of uh the jungle in an in a, in a way that is agroforestry because it's not in rows and it's in extreme biodiversity. You can stand at one tree and look around and not see another tree and you have to take 20, 30 steps, walk half a minute to see another tree and then along the path you might see two more. And in, 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 it, and in this scenario, um, I've observed that cacao can be grown in a region that is rife with pests and diseases without in this scenario in this setting not having a pesticide or fungicide intervention um we can grow it that way in in a in this scenario in an agroforestry and so it's something that we want to pursue at our own plot so therefore in 2019 this year we're increasing the biodiversity at our own farm to a one-to-one -one ratio so it's not as diverse as it is what we observe but it's a, still a huge improvement over a monocropping or a dual cropping so how scenario. are you going about that we have asked for support from our partners um, our clients chefs restaurants companies and we organized volunteer planting programs to put in a thousand trees. So next week, next Saturday, we are putting in another hundred and then we will be at 950 trees 
um, that are non-cacao planted within that plot. So it's a, it's a pilot plot and it's a pilot project. Before we're comfortable advocating this to everyone else, we want to see for ourselves if we could, what is the impact to yield, for example. And if we do a one-to-one, -one, is that sufficient enough to deter pest and fungicide as we see in the wild? So what kinds of trees are you planting on the plots? We are planting some 600 species within a thousand trees and a lot of, and most of them are indigenous. Um, some are threatened, critically, um, threatened species, um, within Malaysia. A lot of dipterocarps, uh, which is, which is found here. Um, and a lot of, uh, ethnobotanic, um, species that the culinary scene in Malaysia are starting to appreciate. So we hope to be able to supply some of these um, unusual ingredients for a time when the chefs are looking for it. Cool. <laughs> do you know, what do you know about um, Malaysian Borneo compared to Peninsular Malaysia? We have very different terroir. For example, we know this for sure because a lot of Malaysians are durian lovers. So we know from the example of durian that the peninsula durian is vastly different in taste, flavor, and genetics than the one found in Borneo. Not one is better than the other, but they're just very different. So is there any cultural difference between Malaysians living on Malaysian Borneo, Malaysians living on peninsular Malaysia? I certainly think so, yeah. In Peninsula, I think, and I speak for from a perspective of Kuala Lumpur, I think the ethnic groups and the religious um, boundaries are more well defined here. And I think in in uh, Borneo side, and I speak of KK and Kuching, it seems to me there is more cohesiveness. Between the religion between the, and the different culture. yeah between the different minorities and mm. and the different cultures. What has the evolution of bean to bar been like in Malaysia? I was talking to May from Bean Blah Blah like last week, and she was saying that kale has had this kind of slow evolution of the chocolate scene over the last decade or so. I think Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia is a black hole in terms of the, the cocoa or cacao scene because in the region of Southeast Asia, which at one time it was a major growing region of Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam, we know of makers in Thailand, Vietnam, and Indonesia, specifically Bali. Most people in the industry could name a few makers from these countries, right? Vietnam. At Thailand, least, at least one, at least one right? From each, but, yeah, yeah. but Malaysia seems to be a black hole. No one knows of, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm oversimplifying things. But or... Malaysia's also like the key that seems to be tying all these regions together because every single episode, someone has mentioned Malaysia in some way beyond really? just, oh, we're near Malaysia. Like in Thailand, they were saying that the first cacao came from Malaysia. Oh, I'm, Vietnam... I'm, I'm very glad that's being credited because Malaysia is one of the four largest cacao in situ collection. We're collecting uh, different genetics and different clones. 
because cacao as a tropical species have seeds that don't store well when it's dried or frozen. So um, there are two kinds of seeds, orthodox or um, incalcitrant. And the ones with cacao is it, once it's dried, you can't you can't germinate it. And so to preserve the genetic spectrum that is available today, we need to um, maintain living species, living specimen. So what do you think has had the biggest impact upon Malaysian chocolate and cacao culture? Because unlike, as I was saying earlier, unlike other cocoa-growing countries I've been to, there's so many chocolate shops that just have tons of the same prepackaged, basically compound chocolate, like palm oil or vegetable oil with sugar. Yeah, like if you search for for chocolate in KL, you'll find basically two chocolate makers two or three chocolatiers, like, what do you think has influenced that? Malaysians seem to be proud of growing so much cocoa, but they use so little of it in their chocolate. That's a mystery that, <laughs> that's a mystery from the start for me. And I, and I saw an arbitrage uh, opportunity. I thought Malaysians, I saw that Malaysians love their chocolate and I saw that Malaysia grew cacao and it never, I never understood why no one breach that gap but actually now i do it's because the chocolate so that fun. the chocolate that we want to make that we we think is i mean i certainly want to make a chocolate that i would enjoy and to do that is not easy with at the time the the type of cacao that was available um for makers um in malaysia but i mean looking at the prices for those boxes of compound chocolate it was almost the same as like you could buy two or three bars from cinnamon. I, I haven't looked at your, I don't know how to pronounce the name either. You said it like cinnamon. But you could buy like two or three bars from them for the cost of one package. And it's just a little bit more by volume. And the taste is horrible. If you've ever had good chocolate, you're like, oh, this is, this is crap. This is not really chocolate. Yeah, it's yeah. like oily. The taste is just not good. Yeah, but I, it's amazing because it seems to sell very well. Yeah, I don't know, and that's why I think tasting, running tasting, is very important. We are, and the work is beyond just one organization or one company. Therefore, we are setting up the first um, fine chocolate and cacao alliance, which Seniman is part of, among others. And we want to, and we, I see, I certainly see. Um, the rest of the makers as allies and together um, hold, hold more tasting so that there are more opportunities for the consumer and the public to compare what's made and grown in Malaysia versus, I mean, and a kuvacha versus what's um, maybe imported or blended or made with other ingredients and non-cacao. And non-sweetener. And non-sweetened. So what are the biggest issues that Malaysian chocolate makers and then Malaysian farmers are running into these days? Major issues? Yeah. Or challenges? Well, I think for the grower, um, pricing is a big challenge. That's why a lot of growers have switched from growing cacao to other crops. Because I certainly cannot appreciate that because where I operate used to be a major cacao producing region in Pahang. And everyone else, all my neighboring plots have been converted to durian. 
and further out palm oil because uh, hectare to hectare the amount of the amount that's rewarded the amount that can generate i mean the the monetary uh, reward for growing cacao is very low if cacao is sold as a commodity so the only way forward for growers in this region is to do the fermentation well so that they can get a, a, a premium on their beans and that's what i'm advocating growers to consider to grow it well um, and to ferment it and to handle post-harvesting well so that they are not um, pressed to sell at a commodity price because the Malaysian grower cannot survive at prices that are coming out of Africa. The living standards are different. Labor cost is different. So what is the price difference between the Malaysian commodity price and the Malaysian premium or fine flavor price? And I have to qualify this by first saying that the farmer doesn't necessarily sell or get the price that's advertised because the cocoa board has a, they announce the price that's collected in KK and one uh, Tawau and a price that's collected in Sarawak and also Peninsula. And a lot of growers may not even have that price because they rely, especially indigenous growers, they rely on a middleman to collect from the village, drive it to the collection center and make a profit from that process. But what's advertised is um, today under way under two dollars per kilo. Yeah, something like maybe thirty-five hundred U.S. dollars per ton. I'm going to like give you an exact. I'm going to give you a per ton equivalence if you just per ton right now is a thousand. $680 a ton is what the growers, I, I, sorry, it's what the collection center is offering. And the collection center is the final destination where it's all like processed somehow. And so there's still a middleman before who needs no, to. No, the collection collect. center is not the, it's not the processor. The collection center still before the is processor. still before the processor. And there's still a middleman before the collection center. Sometimes one or two, yes. What kinds of premiums are you offering that the farmer needs? What amount would make it more worth it to do continue doing cacao versus to cut down all your trees and plant durian or palm? The offering price that we're so far, working with uh, our partner growers are three to four times more um, what is offered by the collection centers. And it seems much less dangerous to grow cacao than durian, because I've heard of durian falling on people's heads. Also coconut, mostly durian, though. That's hardly, hardly a, a hazard for growers. I know, but because... it's a small joke, and it made me laugh. <laughs> It's a, no, it's fatal. Really it's fatal. They're fucking it's huge. fatal. Yeah. And they're and, spiky. Yes, they are. And they're the worst spiky. thing the worst thing to do when you hear rustling of leaves above you is to look up. It could be a civet cat. <laughs> you don't know. Just don't no, just don't look up. <laughs> okay. Especially during durian seasons. But you know that 
hardly happens to growers because they know where the fruits are. It's not it's not random. It falls straight down. Yeah. It only goes in one direction, which is <laughs> yeah. where gravity is pulling it. Mm-hmm. What was the question before that again? Um, so the challenge with crop, with, with cacao, and if anyone comes and tell you it's because of the diseases, yes, at one time it was because they had to change their farming method. But it's no longer a disease problem because that's under control um, if they're willing you know, can be controlled with pesticides and fungicide. Although we're trying to go away from that, but that's a, a possible solution to that. So it's not the diseases. The problem with cacao, it's the pricing. It's a lack of that incentive, of that financial incentive for growers compared to other crops like palm, which is really sadly the, you know, a, a competing crop for cacao because with, with cacao, at least there is, in, in the farms I'm, that I observe, there, there is still a semblance of diversity, you know, nothing compared to the wild. But at least there are other shade crops that provide um, another species or two that can sustain, be sustained within that area, but not palm, or not how it's grown here anyway. How about for chocolate makers? What about chocolate makers? What are the biggest challenges for chocolate? Getting makers? good beans, I think, is the biggest issue here. Mm. Yeah, and then. The other side of that coin is we are operating in a market that is just beginning to appreciate locally grown produce, including chocolate. Did you ever take note of the American chocolate scene, like when you were living in the U.S.? No, I think I left at a time where right before its explosion. Yeah, I don't know if that's true. Or I mean, 2009, this was before a lot of the better known makers they were just you know it's not such a such a huge uh, community at a time right but i was wondering if maybe you had taken note when you were living there and looking for like good chocolate if this reminded you of any stage of the us's i did different things when you know i had a different life in chicago i was um i was an application developer i coded and I studied, my discipline was physics and computer science, so I did very different things. This is my last question. Um, So what are your most popular products and what are you most proud of, either creating or helping to contribute to or developing on your own or with others? Wow, that's so many questions all in one. (laughs) Okay, so... Um, I don't know what's popular. I mean, what? I, I just, I make, I really don't. I, I make a batch of it and if it sells out, I move on. If it, you know, and, and I never, I don't look back. So one of, one of, one of the product that, that, that comes to mind was the first, um, chocolate that I made with nibs that was, that were aged in humus, not hummus, humus. So, one of the and this is totally experimental the the beans are fermented 6 days roasted and then winnowed and then we i packed the nibs into packs that would allow for aeration and i buried them beneath falling cocoa litter for like 2 weeks and then i made chocolate with it and it and ama- it was amazing it was the earthiest chocolate and this was early days you right buried your cacao nibs yes 
under caca- under cacao trees. How much cacao are we talking? Maybe twenty kilos of nibs. That's a really large amount. <laughs> no, that's little for that's little for for no, an I'm experiment. I'm just imagining a little, but like a no, little no, no. I had enough. I ha- I need to have enough to make a batch. Yeah. So. Um, and then I wasn't sure if it was good or not. It was very, it was interesting for sure. But at that time, I met Darren, who is the head chef for Dewakan. Um, it's a really interesting restaurant that um, highlights local um, produce. And when Chef Darren tasted that chocolate, he was like, "How much of this do you have?" And I want all of it. And that's how th- he was my first backer before. Before the Malaysian produce scene really took off, and before restaurants were starting to look inwards at what's produced locally, he was the first backer. And after that, we've moved from one fermentation to another aging, and we've moved on to fermenting in whiskey cask. And very early on, we we started doing that and and pushing the the limits of fermentation. So. I don't take anything for granted, and if the textbook says five days, then I'm testing one day, two days, and I'm not sacrificing a whole batch. I'm just taking a batch. I'm taking a, a small lot out from a larger fermentation batch and making that into chocolate or tasting it raw and deciding for myself. And the longest, um, and I don't mean this by aging. We were fermenting because there are active live culture still. In a vessel with fresh cacao with high humidity, so the longest I fermented, and I and I still think that it could have been longer, was seventy one days. This isn't to say that that um, there weren't any failures. There were batches that that you know, as a chocolate maker, I think um, my most likely cause of death would be there was a batch of chocolate which which I fermented. Um, in a way that was that allowed for maybe um, undesirable um, microbes to grow on, and and it was it was fungal, and I never sh- shy away from fungal fermentation. In fact, that's a batch that we use koji um, to ferment. Um, but this batch turned bright orange when even inside? when I no on the surface on okay. the surface bright orange like neon orange. And I thought, oh gosh, um, doesn't smell bad for one. So that's the first indication if I wanted to throw it away or not. But totally frightening. And I thought, okay, I'm going to make this chocolate anyway. So I made it, and but I can't sell this stuff, you know. So it's sitting in a corner in my room, and every time I pass by, I'm taking a, a piece of it, and I'm eating this stuff, and. I probably should get it tested for aflatoxin because this will be, this may be the death of me. But I'm not selling it. But you still have it. I'm still eating it. And you're still worried I'm that still it's making it. you sick. I'm still eating it. <laughs> you're an insane man. Okay. 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 Is are there any other avenues that you would like to make sure are discussed in terms of Malaysian chocolate and cacao? past, present, future that you'd like to share that you feel like I haven't asked you about today? Yeah. only Well, you know, coming back to what we've said earlier, that Malaysia at one time grew a lot of cacao and now not a lot. But what's hardly spoken about is who are these people who are still persisting when everyone else 
have given up. And I don't take this lightly. There is this romantic connotation. There is, really is, because against all odds, you know, these growers that were at one time among thousands, right? And now we're down to really a handful of growers. And the best plots are the ones that have survived. You know, the ones that didn't quite make it or were iffy or weren't as well managed. Those were the first ones to be weeded out. And the ones that are surviving or thriving or have remained really are the ones that are worth keeping. And that's worth saying because it's an underappreciated fact about who's growing the remaining cacao that's coming out of this region. Mm -hmm. 